0: chapter seventeen of the hall in the grove by pansy this librivox recording is in the public domain yes i like it he went home in a somewhat thoughtful mood the quiet clear-eyed girl who was not in society and whom he had thought to honour by his attention for one evening partly to honour his father's whim, partly from mischief because of the undoubted sensation that he knew he could create in thus transgressing all the society people's sense of propriety, and partly out of pure good nature, because he judged that it would be a new world to her, which he, knowing no one, and caring to know no one in this region, could afford her as well as not. This same unimportant being had given him food for thought, IT WAS A CURIOUS FACT THAT THE ARGUMENT WHICH SHE HAD PRESENTED HAD BEEN IN A SENSE UNANSWERABLE. WHAT WAS A MAN TO SAY TO A PERSON WHO calmly ASSERTED THAT SHE HAD RECEIVED NOT ONE, BUT MANY DIRECT AND emphatic ANSWERS TO PRAYER? THAT SHE WAS MISTAKEN? TRUE, BUT THEN NO ARGUMENT LAY THEREIN, AND YOU HAD BY NO MEANS SUCCEEDED IN CONVINCING THE PERSON THAT SUCH WAS THE CASE. IN FACT, WHEN ONE REDUCED THE MATTER TO ACTUAL LOGIC, was not the weight of testimony against his side of the question? Here stood arrayed an army of scholars, among whom was to be found his honored father, calmly declaring, All other proofs aside, we know this to be true, that God has heard and answered us. Could he, in reply, say, I know this to be true, that God has not answered me? No, he couldn't, because the first part of the statement was lacking. God had not heard him, therefore, how could he be expected to answer him? He actually was not a petitioner at all, had never tried to obtain audience with the king, and yet was presuming to declare, in the face of those who had tried and been admitted, that he knew no such thing was possible. In this clearly unanswerable light did the folly present itself, having been called to mind by Caroline's few quiet words and yet, I grieve to tell you that, gentleman though he was, a reasoning being, with more than usual brain-power, he yet dismissed the whole subject with a careless nonsense, the idea of my plunging into theology, when I came home on purpose to rest. I wonder why that tiresome Chautauqua circle, which is aiming to circle the world, I verily believe, had to put that into its list. Why couldn't it have been content with Rome and other tangible matters?" she is a sharp girl, rather, for one in her position. Well, I've done my duty, and given the sleepy old aristocratic town a nine-days sensation, and she has done hers, and given me a lecture on what is evidently her favorite topic, so we can both sleep with easy consciences to-night. But they didn't, the cultured young artist tossed for hours on a restless pillow. It is plain language, a word not often used in polite society, A word that he by no means allowed himself to use to himself, and yet he knew as well as though he had said it aloud, that he was a fool. Mr. Fenton went home chuckling. He was very much amused with his wife. "'I don't care,' said that little woman, setting her lips firmly. "'I don't like it.' "'Don't like what?' "'This, any of it. I won't have Caroline made sport of.' I don't believe he has the least idea of making sport of her. He is a good-natured young fellow, and his father has given him a hint, quite likely, of the way that Jack Butler and a few other apes of his stamp have treated her, and he thinks he will teach them all a lesson and give her a pleasant time in the bargain. I don't see why it wasn't a nice thing to do, a great deal better than letting her walk home alone or trot on after the Chester's oh well now robert i know young men and so do you if kent monteith were a grand christian man like his father and did such things with a purpose it would be different but he is just the sort of man to make the whole thing into a burlesque to entertain his artist friends with when he goes back to the city they will shout over his caricature of caroline and he will think he is witty and they will think he is jolly and a nice time they will have of it tossing her name about among them i thought caroline had more sense i wonder she didn't decline his attentions on the spot all this set mr Fentonoff into another laugh you women are queer he said when he could speak it isn't two hours since you were admiring young monteith because he was so fine a copy of his father and now you are in a rage with him because he has treated your particular pet like a gentleman instead of making a monkey of himself and pretending to be above her how is a man to go to work to please you i don't quite know what i mean confessed mrs fenton presently only i know i am very much attached to caroline and i can't like to think of anybody laughing or talking about her as so many will now he has made her conspicuous, don't you see? And no woman ought to be made conspicuous. Still, if I thought he showed her attention from real kindness of heart, and not for the fun that was to be gotten out of it, I should feel differently. In fact, if I was sure it wouldn't injure Caroline herself, I wouldn't mind the rest. Injure Caroline? How? What do you mean? Oh, it isn't easy to tell what I mean. Give her ideas, you know. Kent Monteith is in the very first society in the city, rich and talented and admired and all that, and he has sort of singled her out from all our young people, and given her special attention. It would be no more than natural if she should, on the strength of that, get some foolish ideas, and go fancying that he was struck with her appearance, you know, and all that nonsense, and get dissatisfied with her position, and— "'Oh, well, I tell you, I don't know how to express it. In fact, I hardly know what I think myself. This whole question is such a muddle to me. But I know I think a great deal of Caroline, and I don't want her spoiled nor hurt, and I am afraid of such things as we have had to-night.' "'I should think it was a muddle,' declared Mr. Fenton, still in utmost good humor. You are mad at people who slight Caroline, and you are twice as mad at people who show her attention, so I don't know how you are to be pleased. Mrs. Fenton laughed over this picture of her own inconsistency, yet was troubled and perplexed. It was true, as she said, that she didn't know what she thought, only that she wanted to shield Caroline from gossip and from every possible harm. Mr. Fenton essayed to help her, or to think aloud, women are queer, they do it. Do what? Why, make distinctions in society, of which men would never dream, and when they get them made, they don't know what they mean by them. Did you see young Bennet walking away with Miss Harper to-night? This question seemed an entirely irrelevant one to Mrs. Fenton, so she answered wonderingly. Why, yes, what of that? She is nothing but a music teacher, "'Why don't you exclaim over that as mischievous?' "'Robert Fenton, what do you mean?' "'I mean,' he said, laughing at her astonished, not to say indignant face, "'that she affords a good illustration of the distinctions about which I was talking. "'It is all right to receive her into good society, "'though I do hire her to give my boy music lessons. "'That is, we receive her into our society.' "'We must remember that there is a society, here in America, too, that would look down on her with contempt because she earned her living. We have none of that nonsense. But because Mrs. Chester pays Caroline for sweeping her rooms, she mustn't be introduced to our friends. Now isn't that queer?' "'Oh, well, Robert, you know as well as I do that it isn't the mere difference in the kinds of work.' whether it is our fault or not it is a fact that as a rule the girls who work in our kitchens are not fitted either by education or taste to associate with us they wouldn't enjoy it any better than we but you don't think caroline one of the ordinary sort isn't she well fitted by education and taste as most of us of course she is i think she is better fitted than half the girls in town then why not accept that fact and not worry about her, or act as though the accident of her position as a hired helper to Mrs. Chester had anything to do with it? "'People won't,' said Mrs. Fenton, laughing, yet vexed. As for Mrs. Chester, she grumbled a little the next morning before she left her dressing-room. "'I suppose my lady will be too lofty to wait on the table this morning,' I am really afraid I shall feel embarrassed at the idea of soliciting her help. And she set the hairbrush down with a little bang and looked annoyed. She believed her comfort with her rare help was gone. Yet nothing about Caroline contributed toward this conclusion. Her dress was as neat and as severely plain as ever. Her manner as quietly respectful, and her forethought for the comfort of the household as strongly marked as heretofore. Watching her with wide-open, jealous eyes during the day, seeing her go about her many duties with quiet care and usual success, Mrs. Chester gradually changed her mind. "'She really is an unusual girl,' she told herself. "'I don't think I ever even read of one like her before. And yet in English novels one is always reading about those rare maids who are more like friends of the family than hired help.' I declare, I believe Caroline is superior to any of them. Thenceforward, Mrs. Chester adorned herself with a new character. She became the patron of her second girl, talked with her as to her hopes and plans for the future, aided and abetted them as well as she could, arranged that the hours when she was off duty should be absolutely her own, and not interrupted as heretofore by her mistress's whims, and in many ways showed herself a friend. Well for Caroline that she had the rare sense to take this help for what it was worth, and appreciate it. She did not resent the evident air of patronage that hovered about it all. She ignored the constant reminder that her sphere in life was low, and, realizing that special kindness was meant, showed her gratitude in a hundred nameless ways. In short, mistress and maid grew nearer to each other with each passing day, nearer than caroline at least had ever supposed it possible for her to come as for mrs chester she grew daily so satisfied with herself and her experiment that she was in danger of becoming a reformer along the very line in which she had hitherto especially failed but all this is looking ahead I am glad for Caroline's sake that she could not hear the conversation which passed between Mr. and Mrs. Fenton on that evening, especially Mrs. Fenton's share in it. She would have known then that, staunch as that little woman was in her friendship, she underrated the girl she was befriending. Not a thought of silliness connected with Kent Monteith entered our Caroline's mind. There was just this outgrowth from the evening's experience. He was very kind, she said musingly, very kind indeed. It is his father's kindness, of course, handed down to me through him, but it was thoughtful. It made the evening what it could not have been to me, but for his forethought. Then, after a moment of serious thought, poor young man, with all his advantages, his superior education and high culture, not to have even tasted of the true wisdom." and she added his name to the list of those whom she daily brought before God in prayer. And really, if they had all but known it, this was precisely what Professor Monteith had hoped that the rare girl would do for his son. Before the next day's sun had set, one member of the Centerville Circle had what was to him a marvellous experience. Paul Adams, the next afternoon between three and four o'clock, was driving his plane vigorously over a rough board, when he was interrupted by a question from his employer, suddenly put, yet having that indescribable air about it, which lets one see that it introduces an idea that has been industriously turned over in the mind for some time. "'What you going to do all summer, Paul?' "'Work,' said Paul, sending the plane skillfully on its way, yet bestowing a shrewd glance on Mr. Tucker." What did the man mean? Wasn't he going to employ him? Then silence lasted for some time, Mr. Tucker seeming to have exhausted his resources for conversation with that one question. Presently, however, he jerked out another. How would you like to take a little trip with me? A trip? The plane stopped now for a full half-minute, while Paul took time to look amazed. He had never been twenty miles away from home in his life. Ay, a trip!' And the reflective, irresolute look on the face of the carpenter settled into one of determination. "'I've about made up my mind to do it. I don't object to going just for the sake of going. I've never had no opportunities of that kind, and I've about made up my mind to give you the chance to go along. There's others that have worked for me longer, and know more about work than you do, of course, and perhaps could help more.' but I always had a liking for your father, and I don't mind saying that, though I'm kind of astonished at myself about it, I've taken an unaccountable liking to you. The long and short of it is, you can go along if you want to.' And the carpenter tossed down the bit of board that he had been whittling, with an air of satisfaction that at least so much was settled. "'Where to?' was all the astonished boy could say. "'Well, I ain't too sure that I know myself.' The bit of board was picked up, and the whittling went on again. Do you happen to have heard, ever, of a kind of place in the woods, or near the woods, called Chattaquay, or something like that? Indian kind of name, I guess. If he had not been whittling, he would have noticed the sudden gleam of light in Paul's eyes. Chautauqua! He flashed the word out, as if it might have been a talisman. Yes, I guess that is the way he pronounced it. "'You see, there is a kind of settlement there in the woods. "'I don't understand much about it, and it don't make no difference. "'Mr. Monteith, the professor you know, has got interested in it, "'and he wants a house built, two of them, in fact, "'and he says he wants to put the work into the hands of somebody "'that he knows he can trust, and not have to think anything about it. "'And he has made me a good offer, and I'm going to do it. "'He put it into my head to take help along with me from here.' He thinks it will pay if it is a long journey, and I don't mind telling you that I said to him at once I'd rather have you at my heels to do just what I told you than any other hand I had. By this time Mr. Tucker looked up from his whittling and caught the gleam in the young workman's eyes. It was so bright that he felt almost startled. "'You like it, I guess,' he said wonderingly. "'Yes,' said Paul, Catching his breath and trying to speak in a natural tone. I like it. End of chapter seventeen.